Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Andrew and I are delighted today again to host a good friend and much admired journalist, Cheryl Gay Stolberg. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. One of my favorite journalists of all time. So good to have you back, Cheryl. Cheryl is the Washington correspondent for the New York Times covering health policy. Her work looks at the intersection of health, policy, politics. She's been really writing prodigiously of late about the COVID origin debates. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about today. So thanks, Cheryl. I'm going to start with a half facetious question here because it's amusing, which is, what is a raccoon dog? I mean, before your story, I would have said it was like something out of a Saturday morning cartoon. No, it is not. Raccoon dogs live in Asia. They are dogs, not raccoons. Not a hybrid. No, not a hybrid. They're dogs that look like raccoons. Raccoon they have a raccoon face, but they are related to foxes. And they are in the wild. And no, you cannot keep a raccoon dog as a pet. Thank you. It's a canid. Yes, it's it is. a canid, whatever a canid. It's like a canine, you know, okay. a dog. So we just recently had, you've reported on the significant release of new genomic scientific data about this dog in the Wuhan seafood market. What's the significance of that? So the significance of that is that scientists took genetic data from the Wuhan seafood market and they analyzed it. They, they used genetic, they used swabs to scoop yeah. up genetic data because the market was shut down very quickly when the pandemic hit and all the animals were taken away, yeah. but there was still this data. And um, China had actually hidden that data from us, but some scientists got a hold of it. They analyzed it. They found a large match between the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the virus found in raccoon okay. dogs. The, so, the same virus was found in, in dogs. And so they are saying that suggests that this virus was animal in origin. So it could be that the raccoon dog is an intermediate host. It could be. By an, an intermediate host, we mean that perhaps it, this virus came from bats, which harbor a lot of coronaviruses. It infected a dog, and this, yeah. a raccoon dog, which in turn infected humans. But we don't know that for sure. It's possible it could have happened the other way around, that a human infected the dog. But the scientists who are behind this research do believe that this points to an animal origin, or at least it points to the idea that the virus originated at the market. So just to, just to be clear, though, it's hard for a lot of Americans to imagine why a raccoon dog was actually in the Wuhan seafood market. I don't want to belabor the point or get into the details, but is there something there that we should know? Well, yes. I mean, these markets are 
trading illegally in, in wild animals. And they were supposed to be shut down after the SARS outbreak in 2003. And the very fact that this one is in existence or was in existence shows that obviously they were not shut down and they are reservoirs for disease. And Andrew, the, the government reversed itself on outlawing these live animal markets because it was a poverty alleviation strategy. In other words, the, there was a market for buying these sort of live animals, but also the raising them was concentrated in small rural farming communities where it became a poverty alleviation strategy that benefited a fairly significant number of people. So it, it had some domestic policy in it, in assuming the higher risks that came, as we saw. When SARS-CoV-2 appeared, people were like, wait a second, you know, these markets are back and fully functioning. So this most recent thing, it seems to me, it's two aspects. This one, it suggests that the Chinese were covering up some of this data, but for some still unknown reason, the data got loaded up. Right. For a temporary right. period, right. scientists had access to some data that had been collected and concealed, but then it got loaded and then it got and then taken it down. Again. Exactly. So very bizarre. Yes. So, uh, you know, obviously it raises the question, what are the Chinese trying to hide? Why are they hiding this data from the international community? Yeah. And it also, this genomic data appears in a moment when those that favor the alternative thesis, the lab leak thesis, we'll talk in a moment about this. They're seeing a bit of a, a rise in their flag. This brings back, no, wait a second. There's still an active search to figure out whether this was a zoonotic transmission. That's right. So we're having this big debate here in Washington, as you know, um, about COVID origins. House Republicans who are newly in charge have set up a special committee, the Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, that is investigating the origins of COVID with an eye toward discussing the idea that it originated in a lab. And so literally right in the middle of this inquiry, a week after their first hearing, this news of this study dropped. I should say, though, that this new research has not yet been published in a peer-reviewed journal. We're still waiting for that. And it's going to be very important when it does get published for scientists to look at it and examine it and, you know, see whether or not the assertions in it stand up. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Cheryl, is that you know, your reporting and some of your colleagues reporting leads to this also. And Stephen, I have been talking about this on the podcast for quite some time, that the Chinese continue to hide information regarding COVID, whether it's what's happening in COVID now in China and giving us sequences that they're now discovering and or whether it's stuff about the origins. What are policymakers telling you up on the Hill? Because I know there's bipartisan concern on it. Well, there is bipartisan concern, and there's concern within the Biden administration, too. You might remember the State Department put out a fact sheet saying that, you know, the Chinese had done this, 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 and that. They, they were doing secret work. The military was doing secret work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the lab that uh, is kind of at the center of this whole lab leak debate. There were some people who showed COVID-like symptoms in November of 2019. We don't know if that means they had COVID. And in fact, the intelligence community has since discounted that. But still, it raises the question of what are the Chinese keeping and why are they keeping it? And there, you know, there are a couple of answers to that. One answer could be simply that 
They just didn't want the world to think that they were the start of a pandemic. They wanted, they don't want it traced to China. They would like to say that it's some other country, that it came from someplace else. They don't want the origins known. So late last week, Congress passed unanimously in both chambers the COVID-19 Origin Act that mandates that the that the Biden White House declassify uh, whatever intelligence it has on the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, this was a dramatic step. The president has signed that out as of Monday, the 20th of March. So it is now signed into law. The president will be submitting a report to Congress within 90 days. And that's president's signing statement to the director of national intelligence, Avril Haynes, made clear that she's going to sort of use her prerogatives in deciding how to report the intelligence in a responsible way to protect sources and the like. Cheryl, what do you make of this? Put this in context for us. What does this mean? Well, I think we don't really know what it means just yet because we want to see what Avril Haines does in terms of how much information will will she release. But presuming that she releases the full complement or close to it of information that they have, I think it will just put more information out there for the public to absorb. I really don't think that this is going to change the debate in any meaningful way, because we already know that the intelligence community is divided over what caused the pandemic, right? Two agencies, the Energy Department with low confidence and the FBI with moderate confidence have said they believe the pandemic was likely caused by a lab accident. But four other agencies have said that they believe it was natural in origin and you know, the big granddaddy of intelligence agencies, the CIA, hasn't taken a position. So I don't think this will change the debate, but I do think that it will at least give the public a chance to see what kind of information the agencies are relying on and how they've come to their conclusions. It is a call for transparency. It's also an interesting, it's interesting the way it's evolved because it was unanimous in Congress, and the White House didn't push back. The White House seemed to already be leaning in the direction of this. I think there's probably concerns about how some of the released information may be used, but the White House really didn't seem to be digging its heels in against this as this was being debated in Congress. Do you agree? I do agree, but I think we have to remember that this is a really narrow bill, right? This is not a bill that says, let's declassify all the intelligence that we have gathered to determine the cause of this pandemic. It's very specific to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I suspect that Democratic leaders in Congress conferred with the White House before they all got in line behind this bill and behind passing it. And you know, the president has been open-minded about what caused the pandemic. He himself ordered an intelligence review. And so now if there seems to be, you know, a hue and cry from the people's representatives that they want this intelligence to be, you know, accessible to the public, then I guess he was okay with it so long as his agencies and his director of national intelligence can vet it, you know, beforehand to make sure that it's not creating any national security danger by releasing the information. Okay, so if these disclosures come back, come forward, they don't change the balance, the equation much. They don't really lead to some big new clarification of the origin being either zoonotic spillover or lab leak. Do you think it's going to, the information itself will still be 
used to feed conspiracy or will this level of transparency help dampen conspiracy and have a more informed, rational discussion? Yes and yes. I think it will do both. I really do. I think that for some people who are inclined to con- you know, think conspiratorially, this will feed their, you know, whatever, their nightmares, their theories. And I think for other people, you know, they will say, well, you know, this seems reasonable and maybe people will come to the conclusion that, you know what, we're never really going to have an answer yeah. to this. In the past, you know, the Chinese have responded to different disclosures by trying to shift the debate by saying, we don't even know where it started. Maybe it started in Fort Detrick in Maryland in a U.S. military lab. Maybe it started in frozen seafood imported from Norway. With these uh, disclosures, you think they'll amp up their disinformation, the Chinese? I would not I would not predict <laughs> what the Chinese will and won't do. I mean, I don't think our intelligence community has a hard time getting inside their heads, right? So I certainly don't know what they'll do. But I do think that if the past is any predictor of the future, then, you know, they will try to deflect because they already have tried to deflect. And they've been very secretive. They've covered up and withheld information because they don't want this pandemic being traced to China, either from a lab or from the market. You know, it's not in their interest to be blamed for a global pandemic. And they seem to be trying to do everything they can to prevent that. So this is not likely to change their basic narrative, which is, we don't know where it started. We were we were a model of management of this. We've reopened now that the virus is less dangerous. And uh, so let's just move on. Right. It's not likely to change their basic narrative, but it but it is likely to change, I think, our narrative with respect to the Chinese, because we're going to see what the intelligence agencies have said about what the Chinese are withholding and their assessment of how cooperative and forthcoming the Chinese have been. It's quite possible that these disclosures are going to show that like the DOE and FBI are looking at different intelligence and looking at different parts of the institutions and coming up with different conclusions. It's it's quite yeah. possible this will create more confusion. I mean, I'll be interested in seeing that. And I, I'm particularly interested in seeing what our intelligence community has found out about the Wuhan Institute's cooperation with the Chinese military, because I do think that that's kind of fertile ground for the people who advance a lab leak theory. They say, look, you know, the scientists have said one thing, but we know that the scientists aren't really in charge. They were doing these secret experiments with the military. And to the extent that our intelligence sheds light on what kind of experiments those were, did they involve coronaviruses? You know, we don't, we really don't know. Right. I think that'll be really interesting. So I'll, I'll be interested in reading whatever sure. they come up with. But I can't imagine that it will change things because of what I said before, the intelligence community itself is divided. So the scientists are out there debating between themselves and they're in camps. uh, They're as bad as the politicians. They're they're in their own (laughs) camps. You've got the politicians, you've got the scientists, and you've got the intel collectors. Are they talking to one another, the intel collectors and the scientists? I don't think so. They should be. They should be. I would add one other thing about this debate, which is that there are elements in both parties, members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, who really do want a legitimate 
debate. But there are also elements in the Republican Party, they want to make it about Dr. Fauci. He's their, you know, poster boy. They're accusing him of a cover-up. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has, you know, suggested that he personally is responsible for the pandemic. And on the other side, though, they want to make it about Trump. In pointing out his actions in 2020. Right. His failures in 2020, that he was ginning up, uh, concocting a story of a lab leak to distract from his failings. So you have the extremes of both parties sort of tugging in opposite directions. And you've got the middle trying to come together around what's a serious issue. So could you now say that opinion on the origin, it's increasingly getting pretty toxic and pretty partisan. And does that mean then that the prospects for having a reasonable and informed discussion within Congress or elsewhere is diminishing? It's becoming, are we drifting into circus land? I think it's the opposite, actually. I think that we were in circus land, that when Trump was in office and he said, oh, you know, this could have come from a lab. And reporters said to him, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, I'm not allowed to tell you. You know, there was the inevitable pushback from Democrats, from journalists who were skeptical of a president who only had a passing relationship with the truth and were not willing to entertain the idea of a laboratory leak. But over time, we have seen that um, Democrats have become increasingly willing to entertain the idea. You yourself mentioned that President Biden ordered an intelligence review. So I actually think there's more chance right now that we could have a serious and legitimate debate um, on and a discussion on Capitol Hill if the parties can keep their extremists at bay. What, yeah. What sort of concrete new evidence would help clear the air and move this debate forward? Right now, we're the parties are churning. Yeah. They're all they have, the proponents of the two different hypotheses, zoonotic spillover, lab leak, both valid, legitimate hypotheses, but both of them are relying on circumstantial evidence. So they can't really, they're in this competition and it is getting politicized to some degree. But what would it take, do you think, in terms of concrete evidence to change the picture? You know, I, I don't know that we'll ever get concrete evidence to change the picture because that market was shut down. Right. A lot of evidence is gone. Three years have passed. We're entering the fourth year. And, you know, as any detective will tell you, when the trail goes cold, it's hard to crack the case. Yeah. So I'm not sure that there's evidence out there. I mean... And the prospect of China changing its position. It's Stonewall. Yeah, it's pretty low, right? Yeah, I don't see that happening. Well, we can't even get them to give us honest answers about what's happening with COVID in China right now. Yeah. I mean, you saw the World Health Organization last week denounced China for withholding information. But do you think Putin is telling Xi, why don't you just close? Oh, boy. <laughs> now, no, that, no, that's a question, right? <laughs> Cheryl. I like George Bush said, I did not look into his eyes and see his soul. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of soul searching this week, I guess, in Moscow. Cheryl, you know, you mentioned that if we can keep the extremes of both parties out of this, maybe there could be some form of policy formulation. You've got the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic now up and running. You also have the Select Committee led by Mike Gallagher and Raja Krishnamurthy. 
What's the nexus between these two committees? You know, I don't frankly think there is one. And on and don't forget, the House Energy and Commerce Committee is also conducting an investigation into COVID origins. And, you know, each of these committees are like little fiefdoms on Capitol Hill. And they don't really work in concert with one another. I mean, they probably should, but I haven't seen any evidence that there will be any joint hearings or that the staffs are working together of any of these committees. In fact, when the select committee was formed, you saw that one or the other of them, I can't remember whether it was the select committee or the energy and commerce committee, the chair putting out statements, I think it was the select committee, you know, that our committee is the only committee charged with investigating the origins of COVID. So basically sort of marking his turf right there. This was Comer. You're right. It was Comer, who is the chair of um, the Oversight and Reform Committee, which is the parent committee. But you do have also, you have the, as you point out in your reporting, the Senate Help Committee on the on the Republican minority side did its own investigation. Bob Cadillac put that together that came out. It was inconclusive. There's lots of different committees that have jurisdiction, have a jurisdiction over this that can jump in and, and, and do a right. piece and, of this. I think actually it would be, since we did discuss what this evidence showed from the market study, I think it's actually also important to talk a little bit about why the people who think it was a lab leak are so adamant yes. about it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the United States government was funding a nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance that was doing work in conjunction with the Wuhan laboratory. It was funded by NIAID, the Fauci's institute, the institute he ran before he retired. And we know that the NIH-funded work there did not involve SARS-CoV-2. It did not involve any viruses that could have morphed into a pandemic. But we also know that the EcoHealth Alliance had, in 2018, applied for a grant with DARPA, the Division of the Defense Department, proposing an experiment that would have engineered or created a virus that had a very similar genetic feature to the one that is now SARS-CoV-2. Now, that experiment was not funded. That proposal was turned down. That proposal was turned down. It wasn't funded by the Department of Defense. We know also that the Chinese military was doing research at the Wuhan Institute. So it's kind of a case of we don't know what we don't know. And people are raising questions because they say that, you know, all of these things put together kind of smell a little fishy. Right. Acting head of NIH, Larry Trebak, in recent testimony, said, look, we can rule out that the U.S. support through NIH and Echo Health Alliance was not dealing with any of these viruses that were any, anywhere near the coronavirus. But that doesn't mean we have a whole lot of insight into what viruses were being handled inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So in that sense, if it casts some light on the relationship between that institute and the Chinese military, and it casts some light on the work that was underway and what insights we had as to work that was underway, that may that may be significant. Yeah. And I, the other thing that I think would be significant would be if it cast any light on whether or not the Institute tried to pursue uh, the project that our Defense Department didn't fund. And this was a right. project in 2018 that would have was a proposal that would have created 
a coronavirus with features very similar to SARS-CoV-2 that enabled SARS-CoV-2 to easily infect human cells. Um, we didn't fund it. Right. We don't know what happened afterward. So, I'd so be if there's some indication that they were moving in the direction of gain of function genetic manipulation on the coronavirus, then that would that itself may not be definitive proof, but it's but it's going to stir quite a bit of interest. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Anything else you'd want to add, Cheryl, to um, to this? I don't think so. I honestly, I think it was kind of it was odd the way the White House, the way the president signed this bill. You know, he said when it passed that he didn't know whether, you know, he, he wouldn't say whether or not he was going to sign it. And then he signed it very quietly um, without any fanfare. We got a you know notification at five o'clock yesterday from the White House yeah. that the president had signed the bill. And that was that. The signing statement, the president's signing statement gives the director of national intelligence quite a bit of prerogative in what just gets disclosed. And right. the report is going to be processed. It won't be raw and a lot of raw intelligence. No, it won't. It'll be processed. And then the, the director of national intelligence will figure out what can be disclosed. And then the National Security Council will issue a report. Yes. And so I guess we'll talk about this sometime within the next 90 days. All right. We'll make a note in our calendar and we'll be back together around that time. Okay. Let me ask you two questions. One is, why should we care about this? But secondly, if we're winding up in a cul-de-sac, if this is not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it becomes a frozen conflict of sorts, right? So when do we say enough is enough? We need to move on. So the first question, why do we care so much about this? So I think we care because if we know how this pandemic started, we can figure out a way to prevent the next one. That said, it could be easily argued that we need to both improve biosafety and we need to improve pandemic preparedness. And all this energy that we're spending, Washington is spending fighting over the past should instead be directed toward the future. Is there anyone who's saying that? Who's yeah. saying that? Well, we are. Okay. <laughs> Steve Morrison and CSIS's Global Health Policy Center is. There are people is. in Congress who are saying that. There were people during the yeah. recent hearings who were saying that. Ami Barrow was right. saying that. There, there are con members of Congress, Republican yeah. and Democrat. Yeah. Ami Barrow, who's a Democrat, is one who is, I find, very thoughtful and really open to wanting to look at both sides. But to the second question, let's say that this is just... It's never going to get resolved, and we're going to have to figure – it's a frozen conflict. We're going to figure out how to work our way around this and move on. And there just is no way of answering it. I would say see the answer to question number one, which is that <laughs> they should just start focusing on pandemic preparedness and on biosafety. And in fact, that is happening. There is a discussion going on within the Biden administration about how to improve biosafety. Right. Biden has also asked Congress for money for his pandemic preparedness strategy. That does not seem to be forthcoming. But this year, we'll see a reauthorization of the law known as PAPA, the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act. That's likely to be a bipartisan effort. It's also likely not to get passed until the end of the year when there's like a big rush to load everything up on a spending bill. But, you know, I think the answer is to look forward. I mean, nobody would say it makes sense not to be investing in preparedness. I mean, how, how is it even possible that that's not one of the focuses here? 
Well, it it ought to be. And I, I think President Biden has not really made this a big issue, the funding for pandemic preparedness. And I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. He released this national security strategy for pandemic preparedness. And some folks at the White House actually invited me in to talk about it. They really want Congress to fund this. They think it's really important, et cetera. And I said, well, is the president making any calls to Congress? And they said, well, we'll have to get back to you on that. And I said, well, is he going to speak out in public about this? And they said, well, you know, we'll let you know. And I said, well, when the president makes this an issue, let me know. And we have not seen President Biden do that. We saw him do it pushing for money for coronavirus vaccines, et cetera, and making that an issue. But we have not seen him elevate the pandemic preparedness issue to a high priority. And so it's maybe no surprise that Congress has not you know, yeah, push forward to give him the money. Last year when it was the mandatory budget request was eight, over $88 billion, And that didn't happen. This year, the budget presentation is much more realistic and incremental. On this, two questions. One about some people, like Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, very thoughtful, has suggested, well, maybe what we need to do with the COVID origin deadlock is find a create a good independent commission Another and, okay, and have them and then but we've been around the block on the say, commission issue for a while whole, there's no new ideas because in fact patty murray and yes. richard burr who are the respectively the democratic chair and the republican ranking member of the health committee in the last congress put forth a bill that would have established an independent commission modeled after the 9-11 commission to investigate COVID, including its origins. And that did not get passed. Yeah. Too much of a political problem to get that passed, well, I guess. Right? I think the White House favor. didn't want it. White House the White House, House I think, was quietly um, not, you know, they certainly didn't announce that they and, were in support of it. And, and it wasn't exactly the most propitious set of circumstances between the two parties in Congress. It wasn't. And also because it got pushed off to the end of Congress, then Republicans won control of the House. I asked Senator Burr about it. He was retiring. I said, well, what about this bill? Is it going to get passed? And he said, well, I've got to convince the House. And of course, House Republicans who were about to take over had little interest in wanting to pass something that, you know, the the previous Congress did. So... And that the president didn't get behind. Well, and Democrats had no impetus to put it forth, you know, because the president didn't didn't get behind it. And so where does this leave us with the politics on all of this now? You know, there's an intensifying debate over the origins, you know, and there's also an intensifying rush to be tough on China from both parties. Where does this leave us? That is a depressing question, Andrew. I have to say, I frankly think it leaves us right where we started. Although, you know, if President Biden signs that bill to declassify the intelligence, we'll learn a little bit more. If, and this is a big if, Democrats and Republicans can work together to have a thoughtful conversation and bring in witnesses who really know what they're talking about and are not witnesses brought in for political posturing, then at least maybe the public can have you know, greater insight and not be left wondering so much. You know, some of this debate is generalizing now. In one of your pieces, two-thirds of Americans now believe it was lab leak. But does it really matter what Americans think? It could change tomorrow. We're one raccoon dog away from that changing. (laughs) 
let me rephrase that. Of course, it matters what Americans think, but does it? Why are we polling on this? We're yes. not going to solve this by polling. One last question. You've really poured yourself into this topic for a long time. It's complicated. It's a highly divided community of people. It's highly divisive. As we've said, there's a little bit of toxicity that's grown up around this. How have you, as a journalist, how have you navigated this? I'm going to be honest. It's been it's very difficult. This story that we just published on um, how this lab leak debate got caught up in partisan politics was the product of days and days of intense writing and editing, going over every single word, checking every fact, just parsing the intent and the meaning. And, and still, you know, the second it posted, I was getting assailed from both sides yes. on Twitter, which is a lesson, just don't look at Twitter. I guess I feel like if I'm either making everybody happy or everybody mad, then I'm okay as a reporter. I don't want to make one side happy and the other side yeah. mad. I knew that people would find fault with this story instantly, and they did. But they're still talking to you. They're still talking to me. I think because people on both sides do recognize that we made a really good faith effort to try to get to the truth as best we could yeah. and to write in kind of a fair and reasonable way about the discussion that's happening. Well, and I think our listeners will be happy to know that you and the Times poured over every word of it. We pour over every word of every story, but I'm telling you, this took two full days all weekend of editing, you know, eight hours a day back and forth, you know, more than eight hours, frankly. It was a very, very intensive process for this particular story, more so than other stories that are less fraught. The stakes are so high. Thank you. What gives you hope and optimism amidst all of this? What gives me hope just generally is our young people, people my kids age who are out there arguing and fighting for things that they believe in and for trying to make this country a better place. Amen. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for coming and joining us. This is a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.